Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hello and welcome to It's a Fandom Thing. I'm your host, Erin Marlowe, and each week I'm joined by a panel of guests to discuss all things fandom and pop culture, primarily from a female perspective. You'll find everything from fanfic, to cosplay, to Schitt's Creek, to Supernatural, and everything in between. So put on your favorite piece of fandom merch, set aside that fanfic that you're writing about your OTP, and sit back and enjoy this week's episode. Hello, and welcome to this special episode of It's a Fandom Thing. Today, I am sitting down with Matt Cook, or virtually sitting down, I should say, with Matt Cook, who is a PhD, is an economist, a composer, and a Los Angeles Times bestselling author who's based out of LA. He tells stories through writing, music, magic, and numbers. Um, As an economist, he has worked in entertainment finance and founded a government transparency organization. Drawing from experience in over 120 countries, he enjoys infusing his musical compositions with international intrigue. As a close-up magician trained at the Magic Castle, he has performed in Hollywood and often weaves sleight of hand into his talks and lectures. Matt's books include Sabotage from Macmillan, Sleight of Mind from MIT Press, Good Little Marauder, and several others. So I'm very, very happy to have you on with us today, Matt, to talk about writing and composing. So I'm very excited to have you on with me. Um, Thanks, and first- it's, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me on your show. And I've, I've been looking forward to speaking with someone so passionate about storytelling and so knowledgeable about a great many story universes. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you saying that. Thank you. So first off, I just want to know, because you write thrillers. So what is it about that genre that appeals to you? Great question. Well, thrillers, uh, thrillers really follow from the romantic school of art. Uh, which sees people as having free will, um, where people direct the courses of their lives by making decisions in pursuit of certain values. So romanticism is is also really concerned with showing people as they can and should be. And thrillers tend to follow that. Uh, You know, at the core of the thriller is an extreme conflict of goals, which means that characters are acting purposefully in pursuit of their values, which clash with the values of other characters. Uh, Now, thrillers don't necessarily identify those values clearly. Usually the the good values are assumed, 
uh, and the moral conflict boils down to basic good versus evil. But you still have the key elements that make a story romantic. And you have the same flow of characters making choices, pursuing goals, entering dangerous conflicts, struggling through those conflicts, and eventually achieving victory. I think that's the first time I have heard someone compare it to um, the romantic, to romantics, to romanticism, but it makes perfect sense when you explain it that way. Um, because I had never really thought of that, but they do kind of go, it kind of goes hand in hand. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I think that thrillers actually deserve a lot of credit for that. Um, people think of romanticism as kind of an old, uh, an old school kind of thing, but I think that mm -hmm. um, thrillers really do have a lot of the same great characteristics, a lot of the same characteristics that make uh, romanticism wonderful. Uh, and it's really about having characters that are agents of free will, making choices that are based on their beliefs, and that's where all of the drama comes from. And the tension comes from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, I don't think it gets as much respect as it deserves, that genre. And sure, there are novels that aren't written as well as others, maybe. But I think it's kind of pushed aside as not as artistic, if that makes sense. Like, it doesn't take as much skill. And I think it takes a lot of skill to plot out something like that. So, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the values, as I said, aren't necessarily uh, clearly delineated. It really does sort of boil down to basic good and evil. Usually, uh, mm -hmm. sometimes it can be more, uh, more complex than that. I think that um, in comparing it again to romanticism, I think romantic novels tend to be a little bit more explicit about the values that are there at play. Uh, but fundamentally, you do have a lot of the same characteristics, which is why I like thrillers so much. Well, when you're plotting out a novel, what are the first steps that you take? So for me, it really starts by choosing a theme, and then I'll structure the plot to serve that theme. Um, and in both cases, it's really more about thinking than actual writing. Writing a novel seems, I think, to a lot of people like it should entail putting words on a page. Uh, but the critical part really comes before the first word is written. A, a huge amount of time uh, goes into the planning and the outlining. Uh, there's a question a lot of authors are asked, which is, do you outline or do you wing it? Well, when it comes to this process, I really think that there is an absolute right way of doing it. And to me, the seat of the pants uh, writing simply can't yield a great outcome unless by sheer coincidence. It would be uh, an analogy that I sometimes make is it's like starting a major construction project without a blueprint and hoping to end up with a stable um, and beautiful piece of architecture. Well, that's, that's quite improbable. It's next to impossible. And um, the same goes for writing. Writing a manuscript um, is not the same as figuring out the content that you intend to be in the manuscript. So figuring out the content means doing a lot of thinking up front, either sitting down uh, or walking in an environment you like, but not necessarily sitting down in front of the computer and actually typing things. Um, you know, once you figure out what's going to be there, then comes putting down those thoughts and creating the outline, making what I call the architectural blueprint. Uh, that's the real intellectual heavy lifting is all up front. Then comes the construction project, the actual drafting and wordsmithing, which is definitely time intensive. It's a grind and it requires a focus, uh, a lot of focus and energy. Uh, 
but it's by no means the most intellectual part of the process. Uh, I really think you can't expect to come up with a terrific manuscript uh, by skipping that foundational work early on. So it's really a lot of upfront thinking and then the marathon of focus and energy later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, when I write, what what inspires me to write is music. Honestly, anything I've ever written has been inspired by um, a song I'm listening to, by an artist I've been listening to. And I will literally see, because I write screenplays, so oh, I will literally see like a preview, like a trailer in my head. And then I go from there with outlining it and doing all of that. But that's how it starts with me. And so since I know that you are a composer, does music ever play a part in mapping out that story or working that blueprint or anything like that? Well, first of all, it's wonderful that you've made a connection in your own creative process between music and writing. I think that's really great. Books and music have a big thing in common, and they also have a big difference. I think the thing that they have in common is that they're both powerful storytellers. Uh, The difference is that books are primarily conceptual and music is primarily emotional. That's not to say that books don't give us emotional responses. Of course they do. Uh, But books are foremost about things. Their, Their basic unit is the written word. And when you string the words together, the words are actually referring to real things in the world. So that's what I mean when I say that books deal in concepts which then lead to emotions. But music is very different. Music isn't about anything. Music bypasses that conceptual stage and it goes straight to our emotions. So music delivers an emotional narrative. That's how it tells stories. Um, It's entirely an emotional journey. So two caveats I wanna make. Uh, And the first is we're not talking about song lyrics. That's, That's more like writing. Uh, We're just talking about music as the notes and the sounds. And the second thing is that, you know, some composers may have certain things in mind when they write music. Beethoven, for example, may have been thinking about Moonlight when he wrote the Moonlight Sonata. And, you know, same goes for any other musical piece uh, that has a certain thing it's referring to. But you or I might hear the same piece and we could visualize something totally different. So music is non-conceptual because it's not recreating reality in any way or referencing anything in reality uh, that listeners could agree on. So to answer your question, I do write music and sometimes I'll write some music to go along with a story or a scene or a character. Uh, It helps me to imagine things cinematically. uh, And it's a good way to think about the feelings I'd like to give readers. But the conceptual realm and the emotional realm are so different Uh, And the processes that go into writing books and music are so different that it's a stretch for me to say that one really helps the other. They're just, it's fun to do both. Yeah, interesting. And I love the way you described uh, music because as I said on here before, music is really my number one love. Like I always wished I could sing, all of that stuff. Music to me, I can't live without music. I could learn to live without film. I could learn to live without that, but I just could not live without music. And I think it is, it's that emotion. It's, you can find something in a piece of music that, like you said, that someone else might not find and that even the composer didn't even intend to have in there. And that's what I think is so powerful about that. Um, so yeah, I really liked that description there. It's an emo- yeah. It's an amazing emotional communicator. I mm-hmm. think there's nothing like it. Music can convey... Uh, 
emotions sometimes with with greater nuance and specificity than even words can. I mean, there's mm-hmm. certain words for for emotions, and we know what's being talked about, but music actually makes you feel it right then and there. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what can you tell us about your novel, Good Little Marauder? Marauder. Sorry. Oh, well, thanks for asking, Aaron. So, Good Little Marauder is a post. Uh, it's a post World War II thriller, and it's got elements of espionage and art intrigue. It tells the story of Kate Atwell presumably the daughter of British wealth, who seems to have everything, talent, beauty, a promising career as an art consultant. Uh, But she also has a secret. Her name isn't really Kate Atwell. Her real father had actually been an officer in the Third Reich uh, and was Germany's most famous art forger. So she's kept the secret buried for 20 years, um, ever since she'd escaped Germany on a submarine at the age of eight. And uh, Kate will later learn more about her real father. And uh, she's also going to learn about a band of real artists who actually helped turn the tides of war uh, in the Western desert by orchestrating one of the greatest camouflage operations in history. So that that latter part that I just referenced, the Western desert part and the group of artists uh, with their camouflage operation, that's actually a real thing. It really happened. Uh, and it was, oh my gosh, so much fun learning about that uh, during the research for the novel. I bet. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, um, I've, I've read some of the novel and I want to say just with the character of Kate, um, when she does discover that about her father, when she talks about that, it's just so interesting because in the beginning, she's this young child who just loves her fire father and admires him so much. And then learning that he was part of this disgusting thing that happened and that he helped contribute to that and her having to deal with that and having her own personal shame. It seemed like that was just so interesting. So I just wanted to mention that because I just think that can be a universal theme where um, people we might admire when they end up being what we didn't think they were going to be and having to deal with the after effects of that, especially something as big as this. I mean, you know, that's huge. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, that's certainly a big struggle for her. Another, you know, one of her big struggles on a similar vein is that she feels, at least during part of the story, like she may have inherited some of the guilt because of her father's actions. Now, she never sees him again after the age of eight, uh, but his image um, still haunts her for, uh, for much of her life. So one of the themes, one of the questions in the novel is, are we responsible for the actions of our family members? Mm-hmm. And the book certainly takes a stance on that. Uh, but it's, you know, it's one of the themes of the book. Yeah, which is, a, which is a great theme. And we won't give away, of course, the end or anything, but it's a great theme. So, and of course, it is a period piece. And I just, I mean, I can't even imagine how much research went into writing this. Plenty did. You're, you're right, Erin. Researching the novel was actually quite addicting. Uh, I think there's a tendency to get very excited about every little thing that you read that might be remotely related uh, to the story. I went a little overboard at the start and had to dial it way back during the editorial phase. Uh, One of the lessons there that I really had to kind of struggle to learn is that novelists should remember that while the research is a big time investment and it feels like it should influence the novel in a big way, 
readers are really mostly interested in the story and the characters, not so much all the details that you as the author were excited about when you were doing the research. Mm -hmm. uh, there is one book I want to mention that I found exceptionally interesting and useful during the research, and that was The Phantom Army of Alamein by Rick Stroud. Uh, that book was nonfiction. It was all true. And yet it was every bit as suspenseful as a thriller novel. That was really a great read. Hmm. I'll have to look for that one. I had never heard of that one before, so I'll have to definitely look for that one. And art, of course, plays a huge role in the novel. So how important is art to you personally? Oh, great question. I think art is exceptionally important to all people, whether they realize it or not. Uh, and I don't just mean visual arts. I think this applies to many art forms. As we go through life, we're constantly learning things about the world. We're forming value judgments. We're identifying certain moral principles. And we're formulating ideas that are very abstract. Now, art has the ability to bring these abstract ideas to our immediate perceptual awareness. We're actually seeing something concrete with our eyes and ears. Um, and that's very powerful. It's even useful. I think art helps us sort out our ideas according to what's essential. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, and you've talked already a little bit about blueprints and, and, the th and um, that theme comes first when you're plotting out. Uh, but what comes next? Does the plot or the characters or how does that work? Sure. Yeah. So there's something that comes before plot or characters, and that's theme. Um, you know, I think to write a good novel, you can start by thinking about plot and character. But to write a great novel, I think you have to start with theme. What is your key question or idea? And you can then construct your plot to serve that theme. And the plot, of course, needs characters. So I'm not sure whether it makes sense to think about plot first or characters first. They sort of go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. um, so really to write a great novel, you should think of characters as actors in a plot that serve a theme. Um, personally, when it comes time to laser in, I like to write a brief bio for each character full of decision points in their lives that reveals their ideas or, or some of the key events that may have shaped their ideas. Um, and the information in those biographies may not actually appear in the final product, but putting those thoughts together helps toward consistency of character uh, and also make sure that the character is written in a way as to serve the theme of the book. I, mean, I was just sort of, <laughs> sort of thinking there, loose kind of hanging <laughs> thought. I was deciding, should I, should I say this or not? But you know, one, one last point that I'd add is something very critical for me when thinking about characters is... Are the good guys people that I'd look up to and want to spend time with? Are they admirable? So that's my, that's what I'll say about character. I think that's a good question. And I, and I, what you're saying about writing the brief biography, I do that with screenplays too. And I will, I'll actually sit there and I'll write down questions as if I was interviewing the character. And, you know, like, what would be your favorite song, your favorite this? What did you want to be when you were a kid? Um, who did you look up to? Who did you admire? Those kind of things. And like you said, a lot of that stuff might not even end up in the final project product. Mm -hmm. But when you have that in your head, I think it helps so much with the dialogue, with the plot. Because if you know who that character is inside and out, it's only going to enrich whatever you're writing. So, Absolutely. Um, mm -hmm. it, it creates consistency and dimensionality. 
Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and an, I know an elderly cousin of yours was a battlefield nurse during the Battlefield of the Bulge. Um, how did that influence? Uh, I'm so glad you brought her up. Yes, my cousin Muriel Engelman is a true hero of World War II. She served on the front lines of the Battle of the Bulge as an army nurse. Um, she saw serious action and was constantly surrounded by serious threats. You know, there were uh, buzz bombs going off through the days and through the nights near their mobile hospital. Uh, her husband, my cousin Mel Engelman, also served. He recently passed away, sadly, and we miss him dearly. Uh, Muriel is still going strong at close to 100 and has been an active speaker across the country. Uh, so to answer your question, yes, Mel and Muriel's heroism certainly inspired many of the good guys in Good Little Marauder, which is why the book is dedicated to them. Wow. Well, I'm sorry for your loss first off, but that's, that's incredible. And it's incredible that she's close to 100 and still, and she still actively speaks across the country. I think she may have uh, slowed down a bit on the speaking, mm -hmm. uh, particularly during the uh, coronavirus pandemic, but um, boy, she is still full of energy. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful to hear. Um, and speaking of women, you write some very strong female characters and we talk a lot about, you know, this, this podcast is focused a lot, um, about the female perspective and, um, analyzing media that way. And what I really appreciated was that you write strong female characters that aren't defined by their sexuality or by what they can do for a man which is unfortunately what a lot of people write about when they're writing about women. So why was it important to you to write such strong female characters? I love this question, Erin, especially because we live in a time when much of public discourse is devoted to issues of gender, race, and other involuntary attributes of people. So, you know, I, I said earlier that I subscribe to the romantic school of thought when it comes to art and particularly literature. Um, and again, in the romantic view, people are capable of directing the courses of their lives. They have free will. Things may happen to them, but they can still respond actively. And ultimately, they can still identify what's important to them and pursue those things. Um, they are their own motive forces. Romantic characters are interesting because of the ideas they have and the goals they set and the choices they make. Uh, so those are the fundamentals required for there to be dramatic conflict is really the, you know, the characters having ideas and goals and making choices. If the essential things about a character are involuntary, like their gender or their race, if that's really the essential thing about them, uh, then the character is bound to be boring. A character can have ideas in response about what it means to be a certain gender or a certain race, which has the potential to be interesting. Uh, because those are ideas and ideas are voluntary. But if the character's essence and identity aren't a result of the choices that they've made, well, then we're pretty limited in the potential for interesting drama. So to answer your question, I don't think about writing strong female characters. I think about writing strong characters defined by their ideas and their principles, uh, not the things that they can't control. And the result, hopefully, is that the characters are interesting regardless of their genders. And you also made a comment about my female characters not being defined by their sexuality. 
Um, I would agree that none of my characters of any gender are defined exclusively by this, but many of them are still sexual beings who mm -hmm. think about sex, who have sex, who mm -hmm. enjoy sex. And that's because sex is a wonderful and interesting part of life. Mm -hmm. uh, and a character's view of the role of sex in his or her life um, or what he or she is attracted to in a partner. Those are interesting ideas that make for great drama. Yeah, and I and I totally agree with that. I think it. I mean, it's just more if you're defining a character and they're just about sex or just about their sexuality, and they have nothing else there and no other layers, or they're just there um, to feed somebody else's sexual desire, then that can kind of get old and boring. But I agree. I mean, sex is a part of life, and um, we are, like you said, sexual beings, and that's different for everybody and define differently. So yeah, yeah, agree with that. Um, I recently read this article on masterclass.com that goes over like five tips for writing a thriller. So what would your five tips be? Oh my gosh. So I have no idea what masterclass says. I'm sure there's some great ideas there. I guess mine would be one, start by identifying your theme. Two, uh, with absolute clarity of theme, create your plot and characters to serve that theme. Three, I would say be a planner, outline extensively, do more thinking than writing. Uh, four, I would probably say every sentence should advance the theme, plot, uh, the characters or the setting, every single sentence. And five, I would say define characters by the things that they believe and choose not by the things that they can't choose. Well, I like that. I like that list. I'll, I'll have to, um, and all writers struggle with writer's block. It's just part of the process. Um, how do you combat that when you come across it? That's another great question. So please allow me to meander a bit in my thoughts before getting to your precise question. So writer's block, let's talk about writer's block. Writer's block and inspiration are really two sides of the same coin. And the way that they're commonly used, I think reveals a misconception about the creative process. So people talk about writer's block and inspiration as if they were these external forces happening to a writer, like getting a cold or watching your stocks go up and down. And according to that view, some people are the lucky ones who just happen to be gifted with inspiration, while others are sort of cursed with this thing called writer's block that happens all the time. And there's nothing that anybody can do about it. So to me, that sounds a lot like fate and destiny. And that's not how writing works. The clouds don't part and hit some of us with bolts of lightning that others don't have the privilege of getting. There's a great quote uh, by Chuck uh, Close which is inspirations for amateurs. And I kind of subscribe to that view. The, the people who seem inspired really are that way because they're going through life with very active minds. They're constantly processing things. They're identifying principles, uh, fundamental ideas about our existence. Uh, they're thinking about our nature and how the world works. They're thinking about all those things. And they're also constantly sorting out their values and their knowledge, they're organizing everything mentally, they're kind of putting all their knowledge on a hierarchy. So it's clear to them how the various concepts that they discover relate and fit together. 
as part of the greater um, philosophy that they have for life. So people who are active minded like this, who are drawing from an integrated body of knowledge, will find it a lot easier to write a cohesive story that's organized around a core theme. Um, and that's sort of what makes it seem like some people are inspired. I, I, that's what I think inspiration really is. That's what they're drawing from. Now, people experiencing writer's block are usually suffering from the problem of contradiction. They've chosen certain goals, premises, or constraints that are actually inconsistent with each other. And the writer isn't sure why. Uh, now you can combat this by taking a step back from the immediate scene that you're working on, uh, checking your premises, looking for inconsistencies in what you're trying to achieve, uh, and writing less and thinking more. So I would say the answer to writer's black block is really demand results from the brain and not from the pen. Um, so writing's hard, you know, it's very cerebral. And I don't mean to suggest that some people are immune to this problem of contradiction. It, you're right to point out every writer is going to experience this thing called writer's block. But I think it's helpful to know what's really going on. It's not something that's happening to you. It's a result of unresolved contradictions in the premises that you've chosen. And you have to spot those contradictions and work them out yourself. Interesting. Yeah, I've never heard it really explained quite that way or talked about quite that way with the contradiction things, um, which I can I can understand that and see that. Um, and, you know, I think I think the other thing with writer's block, at least the way I view it, is another part of it is writing is can be very, very, very hard to do. It's very it can be pain. Excuse me. It can be painful, too, if you're drawing on your own personal experiences. So sure. it, isn't always necessarily the most enjoyable thing sometimes to do. Uh -huh. um, so I think sometimes that part of us, that part of us when we're writing or if we're delving into something, which might even come up with this contra with contradiction, is when we're delving into something that we might not want to look at, I think sometimes that writer's block can pop up because we sure. don't want to actually explore that subject, um, especially if it's a, at all personal. Um, I know that's happened to me before when I've been writing certain things that draw on my own personal life experiences. And I'm like, and all of a sudden that just kind of goes, okay, we're putting a block on this and I know uh -huh. why. So, but it is that thing of wanting to try and combat that. Yeah. So you're saying that you're, you know, one of the forms of writer's block that you've experienced is finding the ideas that you're trying to get at so unpleasant that it's, um, you sort of delay working on it or you mm -hmm. delay thoroughly letting your brain uh, go there. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because it might gotcha. be something you don't want to completely relive or explore. And um, the other thing that's come up with me before, I, I write horror as well. So I've oh, written horror okay. stuff. And when you write horror, at least for me, um, you do have to sometimes go to a dark place. So I think sometimes that can also make that come up. Um, and you know, I, I think it's something that I think people have to kind of be forgiving of themselves of uh, getting it. And like you said, I think if you really look at where it's really coming from and then it's not necessarily that you don't have words, but there might be something else that's actually holding you back. So like with what you're saying with the contradiction and then other things like that. 
Yes. I think, you know, for, in my case, the toughest writing is when I sort of have in my mind, I want to write something that accomplishes A, B, C, and D, but something about A, B, C, and D um, is actually inconsistent and that there's really nothing that's going to accomplish those things. So in that case, the thing to do for me is to kind of say, well, let's check those premises. Do we really need A, B, C, and D? And the other thing I would say about writer's block is sometimes give yourself time, you know, don't mm -hmm. beat yourself too uh, hard. If you don't have the answer in 24 hours, the subconscious actually works very hard at problems when we're not even aware of it. Sometimes giving it a week or two or longer in, in some cases to come back to a problem, you'll find that you've actually been working on it. You haven't been consciously working on it, but you can come back to it not just with sort of a fresh perspective and a break, um, but you'll actually be a lot closer to the solution because you've been thinking about it without realizing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that, that's that's great advice. Yeah, because I think too often people beat themselves up about it um, or say, no, I should have this done by this exact time. And yes, there are deadlines that you probably will have to meet, but I think when you put that pressure on it, it will actually make that writer's block worse. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it might even make whatever you end up writing might not be to the exact level that you want it to be, or might not be as good as it could be if you just take a little bit of a step back or don't beat yourself up so much, um, which can be hard. Certainly. I do think though that, you know, ultimately the key is to, is to have a good view of what's really going on with inspiration and, and writer's block and not view those things as, uh, as if they were sort of fate or destiny to you or something that's happening externally. It really is self-generated. Um, and that's actually a good thing because it means that you hold the key to being inspired more often and to preventing writer's block in the future. It's, you know, it's a good thing. The writer's block, of course, is a problem. But you also are the answer to that problem or have the answer and can discover it. So we're ultimately in control. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's true. Um, well, I just want to thank you again for being here and having this discussion with me. Um, I've really enjoyed it. It's been really interesting. I've learned a lot too. So thank you. Um, and we didn't really get to touch much on your music. So I don't know if you, there's anything you want to talk about with that, or if there's anything else you want to promote or anything. Oh, it's very kind of you, Aaron. Thank you. Um, absolutely. I feel the same way. It's been a wonderful discussion. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, and I, I love the theme of your podcast and I look forward to tuning into lots more episodes. Thank um, you. Sure. I'll, I'll end by sharing my website, which is visitmat.com. Uh, it's always great to hear from readers and visitors. I have some of my music up there. Uh, some music that was recently recorded by the city of Prague Philharmonic. They did a terrific job. So I'd encourage anyone listening, please give the site a visit and drop me a line. I'd love to hear from you at visitmatt.com. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Matt. I really appreciate it. So thank you for your time. Thank you, Erin. Thank you. And you can follow me on Twitter at eAprilBeauty. The E and the A and the B are capitalized. Be sure to like the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash it's a fandom thing pod. On Twitter at Fandom Thing Pod, no it's in that one. On Instagram at It's a Fandom Thing Pod, 
If you have any show notes, any feedback, if you'd like to be a potential guest on the show, feel free to reach out to us via email at it's a fandom thing pod at gmail.com. And on our next episode, our producer, Lilith Tafola, is going to be on. She hasn't been on an episode in quite a long time. And it's just going to be her and I discussing Star Trek. And that's something that I'm really new to. So it'll be a really fun discussion. We've already got a little bit of a great outline going. So that should be a lot of fun. And I'm just really happy to have her back on because she hasn't been on in about a year. So it'll be really cool to have her on. So until next time, remember, it's a fandom thing and Black Lives Matter. Thank you again for listening to It's a Fandom Thing. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on all your favorite podcast platforms. Our logo was designed by Brooke Belly with cover art by Carla Timmies. Additional research was done by Megan Archuleta. Our Instagram and Facebook content producer and creator is Erin Amos. And our producer is Lila Tafola. I'm your host, Erin Marlowe. And remember, keep that fandom spirit alive. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.